Lost in Sound is sponsored by Audio-Technica. This year is the company's 60th anniversary. Audio-Technica are a global but still family-run company that make affordable products because they believe that high-quality audio should be accessible to all. Their wireless earbuds are one of the best and most accessible ways to listen to Lost and Sound on, and it's through these that I've been listening to the artist you're about to hear today. So head on over to audiotechnica.com to check out all of their range of stuff. Right, it is pretty, pretty autumnal now in Berlin, and you are listening to Lost and Sound. going. I'm Paul Hanford. I'm a writer, an author, presenter, and welcome to Lost in Sound, the podcast where we meet the innovators, the outsiders, the mavericks, the artists that do their own unique thing. And we talk about life and the things that inspire us to make the things that we make. Because beautiful things don't come out of a hierarchy of knowledge, but out of sharing. And today you're going to hear a conversation I had with someone who epitomizes this spirit this ethos, like no one else, really, cozy, fanny, 2T. Head on over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Paul Hanford if you want to support the show. And my book, Coming to Berlin, is available now on Velocity Press. Right, it is a rather autumnal Saturday morning. You might hear a little bit of train noise from the S-Bahn. going around behind me I'm one coffee in and I'm about to speak to you about a conversation I had about a week ago with Cozy Fanny Tutti musician artist writer communicator at points in her life she's been founding member of the Coombe Art Collective a founding member of Throbbing Gristle a group credited with 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 the the birth of industrial music not just that but i think the birth of so much of how we hear and perceive art and electronic music and 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 a certain kind of attitude so much really and one half of chris and cozy with her partner chris carter one third of carter tutti void with chris carter and former lost and sound guest nick colk void her first solo album time to tell came out in 1983 and in 2017 she lit up as they say the literary world when she became an author with her memoir art sex music now there's a double whammy of releases her second book re-sisters or resistors 
is out and there's a, a sort of accompanying album Delia Derbyshire the myths and the legendary tapes we talk about her book Resistors in quite detail which paints a portrait of three defiant women with an individual unconventional attitude to life Delia Derbyshire Marjorie Kemp and Cozy herself her website caption reads my life is my art my art is my life once she was seen as a cultural pariah, often working naked in her performances, Cozy went on to investigate self-image within the context of sex magazines and sex films, glamour modelling and striptease acts. And the music of Robin Gristle and the art actions of Coombe were too much for many people of the day. In fact, it even got to a point in 1976 where questions were asked and outrage was you know, outraged across the Houses of Parliament in England where a Conservative MP described them as the wreckers of civilization. I could go on and do a Wikipedia about this now, and I'm not going to. Suffice to say, as you know, she's now considered a trailblazer. She's an icon. She's an inspiration, not just music and art, but for anyone who doesn't want doesn't feel like they were were born to follow the herd um i've related in my own personal way to her work for for a long 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 time so i was super excited to have this conversation and you're gonna hear it now i i kind of wanted to start by um just like a little anecdote aside that um, I was interviewing Alexander Hacker uh, from Einstein Neubauten a couple of years ago, and I went round to his house and he gave me a cup of tea and it was in a throbbing gristle mug. And <laughs> <laughs> he suggested that like you had a Einstein Neubauten mug when I asked him about it. I don't know if he was if he was just joking with me or not, and I've been desperate to find out if that was true. No, I read that in your book actually, and I wondered which TG mug it was. What did it look like? Um, I'm, it was kind of, from my, what my memory serves me correctly, which might be wrong, or I might have started to fabricate it in my own mind, it sort of was quite a kind of um, 70s sort of swirly kind of logo, but that might yeah, be wrong. It must be a bootleg. We didn't do mugs. <laughs> right, yeah, bootleg mug, yeah. <laughs> but no, I don't have um, Einstein, no, no, no Neubauten mugs here in the house. Right. Okay. Good to clear that up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm I'm reading uh, Resistors at the moment. I've got a really nice hardback copy of it, and um, you've dedicated a book to selfhood. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what that means for you. Um, it just means, in very basic terms, getting to know yourself and be yourself in this world where so many people are sort of like wanting to be like one another and you know, the whole thing of um, superficial lifestyles, which which to me, I don't think they kind of deliver a, a, a fulfilling experience of lo- what life can offer. And that's what it's about. And that's how I feel that myself, Delia and Marjorie lived our lives, being who we are, finding out, discovering who we are, and then working with things as we experience different issues throughout our lives, but always remaining true to who we feel we are inside rather than sort of um, surrendering to what people want us to be or society and culture expect us to be. Yeah, and, and you, you kind of mentioned about how 
through Delia's work, your, your own work and Marjorie's work, the idea of recording and how that's tied to fortitude, which she was just talking about there. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how, uh, a little bit more about the kind of idea of how recording can sort of enable this, this sort of uh, self-determination, I guess. I, I think it's really important to record yourself in silence, and, and we all do it in our own way. Even nowadays on Twitter, people are recording themselves. Well, if if it's their selves in inverted commas or not, I don't know. Not not everybody does. It's some people stay on the bandwagon and just keep reiterating what others say. But um, as far as um, externalizing feelings and emotions artistically or in your life, I think it's very important. Because you leave this, um, you leave this sort of memory of yourself and the energy behind it for people to pick up on. Maybe in like with Marjorie in six hundred years' time, but it has a huge effect on people. And I think that's what's important about it is that you never know how it's going to affect someone so positively and, and inspire someone. Even the same day you do it with a tweet or whatever it is, or whether you do a recording, write a book or make a sculpture. And, and then that comes into someone else's life at some point. And they, um, yeah, they get inspired by it. And I think that's what, what's wonderful about creating something and recording what your experiences and your life is about and how you want to communicate that with people. It's all about communication with me. Mm. that's that's really lovely and and with with Delia as well like I mean were you you know because I mean with a lot of the work with the radiophonic workshop as you write about in the book that for quite a lot of time like the work was uncredited to to the the composers you know for various kind of usually kind of patriarchal reasons about you know what music is and and stuff like that you know and I, I'm wondering if like sort of if you had uh, any early early impressions of listening to Delia's music maybe without knowing it was her like you know with the Doctor Who theme or or something like that when you were growing up. Yeah, I did, but like you said, I didn't know it was Delia. I just, it was just the music that came with the program on radio or television. But I, I do remember watching some programs on TV and and noting how strange the soundtracks were. Because I remember thinking, these are very odd noises, but they worked. And that's as far as my thinking went. They're odd noises, but they work. You know, and I, I liked them for that. So, yeah, not knowing it was Delia, just assuming it was someone that did it somewhere in the BBC. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think I can remember. I remember being a child and having the sort of thing of being quite scared of the Doctor Who music. But yeah, again, I did. I didn't think about it in terms of like what it was or processes or it being electronic even or anything like that. No, I don't think I, I didn't even think of it as being electronic. They were just mm. noises that worked, you know, that 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 were great sort of descriptive sounds for what was going on on screen or even, you know, on the radio, if there were programmes on the radio. I can't even remember any of them now, but I remember listening. We had the radio on a lot at home, like Delia did. And um, and my, my dad used to mess around with building radios and things. So I was kind of used to those noises. Um, so listening to them when they were put out sort of officially, so to speak, they, you know, I was just thinking, oh, that's a bit like my dad does, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's funny that like, that you know in childhood maybe we consign less less sort of kind of cultural meaning to to what sounds are as well like you know to us listening to Delia's music without knowing it's Delia as a child we're not thinking about it being electronic or this yeah. and that but you know to like a you know in in the kind of systems that she was working on and and, and de- you know you you had to deal with as well there was a lot more of a kind of uh, a box fitting system going on do you think yeah I do and and as a child you haven't got those reference points yet in which to analyze the sounds that you're listening to which I think is fantastic because you come to it fresh don't you Mm. unless someone's in the room telling you what it is and and you're sort of spoiling it really for you (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure we've all had examples of like things where we've been put off a little bit by music by someone telling us about it oh yeah yeah for sure but I'm as far as ticking boxes for Delia were concerned, I think with her and her talent, which was quickly recognised at the BBC, to be honest, mm. but not recognised kind of publicly, they 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 knew that she was very good at what she did. That's why she got so much work in within the Radiophonic Workshop. And, and people would pass certain projects to her that were very difficult. Like, you know, how do you do the sounds of, I think I mentioned it, like in Stones and Rock. And what what do rocks and stones say to each other? Oh, that's one for Delia, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because uh, her imagination was amazing, and 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 she just loved the idea of having to try to find a sound that would represent something inanimate, you know. Mm. So so ticking boxes as such, she ticked them, but in her own individual way, I think, and she sort of worked around certain um, um, instructions that she got, or worked with them to, but to mm. You know, she'd go off to one side and do it differently to other people. And I think that's what makes her her music so outstanding. I mean, I I kind of get that maybe, or I have this assumption, I might be wrong, that maybe, um, again, in, in sort of parallel with your music and your art as well, there's a sort of sometimes the idea of not being too tutored and stuff kind of is it like that like you were talking about Delia like sort of although she was incredibly sort of learned and, and as you are too though this sort of idea of, of being able to kind of channel into your imagination as well you know which which you've done with your work or you do with your yeah. work do you, do you find like sort of it's it's kind of quite important to sort of uh limit what kind of orthodoxy you kind of absorb in from other people and and you know systems around you that can maybe describe you know put things into more of a box kind of format um I I think with me when I do music because I don't write music I've forgotten everything I learned when I was 11 thank goodness Um, but when I do music I, I because I don't I don't have that approach anyway. I don't even think of it in those terms. I, I don't think I'll I'll dodge that because it's not it's not something that's within my process at all. Where I mean it was with Delia because it was her starting point almost. She she was I mean she was her brain I think was like a little computer with regards sort of um, writing music and using mathematics and so on. So but she would use that as a starting point, which was great, and then she'd sort of jump out of it and do different time sequences and things like that to try how they how they could work she was very experimental in that respect even though she was um uh, classically trained and a brilliant mathematician but those two things actually helped her i think 
um, experiment out because she knew what she had to avoid almost like you've mm. just said do you th- I think Delia probably thought of all those things and utilized that knowledge but wanted to go outside of it to to fresh fresh kind of sounds that sounds she'd never heard before like I've said mm. but I, I think some of it was when she went on um, she went on tour with the theatre group from Cambridge and she did the sound effects for them for their plays and I think that might have um an expo, of course, going there. I think that really fired her imagination. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've just uh, this afternoon um, read the bit where you're kind of talking about how she would lay out the tape loops, you know, and like how there was one tape loop, there was a thing that she likes to like going in and recording at night and laying out tape loops that would run all the way through like a really, really long corridor and back, yeah. as, back as well. And it just sounds really amazing. Do you kind of, um, you know, there sounded something like quite, amazing about the kind of equipment she was using and stuff like that and as a musician with yourself when you were researching that was that something that you found like like really exciting to 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 sort of research and find out about yeah because I mean well tape recorders around when I was 10 and 11 because my father bought me one so I knew all about that and I knew what she was working with but the intricacies of what she did were just like and spending days on on just a you know like not even 30 seconds of a piece of, of music and but but that was part of her process and that was part of the love of sound that she had was that she almost didn't want the the experimentation to stop because there were mm. always possibilities along the line and you do find that I'm a little bit like that when I'm doing music where as I'm going through singing well that's great but what if I just did this so I'm constantly saving things because I like it like that <laughs> and yeah. then and then I think, right, I'll just take that and I'll do something else with it. So I end up with like loads of different versions of one thing. But for Delia, she couldn't do that because tape was expensive then. And she, you know, they ran to a budget at the BBC. So she was um, she was very careful in that regard, but grateful as well, I think, to, to be in that situation, to have all that equipment to work with. Yeah, and and working on the uh, the Myths and Legendary Tapes album as well, you know, and how would you say you kind of took the inspiration of Delia in terms of how you worked on the music yourself for that album? I I think I took the inspiration from her life Mm. and what I interpreted as being my version of Delia, if you like, and other people's versions of Delia. So because when I wrote when I wrote the book, I, I interviewed a lot of people that knew her, and um, and I knew already from working with Caroline, who had researched Delia in such detail for so long, I had kind of like a rounded image of what Delia was like, mm. and and going by the music that she created and the sounds she particularly loved, the frequencies and so on, is that I kind of had in my mind a sound that was Delia. So when I went about making um, the music for the film, I would come across something and it would either scream Delia to me, yeah, that I could imagine that in Delia's life or her liking that sound mm-hmm. or something. And I go, no, it's definitely not Delia and put it to one side. <laughs> I, was, I got carried away with Cosy Fanny Tutti in that section. So I'll just put that one for something else that I'm going to mm-hmm. do later. 
<laughs> I love the idea. So it's kind of like, I mean, because I got that when I was writing my book and um, speaking with other people that have like made, you know, making albums or writing books or making art. It's sort of particularly with like the kind of the writing sort of thing of, of like the relationship that you develop with someone that's like not actually there, you know, but that you're writing about. And it sounds like you kind of developed your own relationship with her through this work. Yeah, I, d- I did. And I, I got, you know, I, I know you will have come to the bit in the book, but um, but there came a time when I'd finished writing about Delia and I didn't want to stop. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. she'd been with me for so long and, you know, she was kind of like alongside me. So it seemed sort of like, oh, I don't want, I don't want to end it really. Mm. But yeah, I've got to get on to Marjorie now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a friend of mine um, who's a scriptwriter, she was kind of saying how when she starts, when she goes back to a script, she really loves the fact that she's spending time with these friends that she's, sort yeah. of, you know, in it. It's true that they, they do become friends. And, and and also I spoke to someone else who's um, an actor and a, and a scriptwriter, and they said that they get quite possessive about them in the end, you know, and mm. you, know, you become, no, that's that's my Delia, you know. <laughs> Caroline was like that as well a little bit we both were quite protective of Delia you know something that we didn't think was her or didn't represent her as as um we felt she was or respectfully Mm -hmm. then we got um quite angry about it you know yeah and were were there any kind of times where it got to blows who is um in in that kind of uh, sort of like how you feel Delia was and maybe other people sort of wanted the no. sound in a different way or was it all quite a harmonious process well it, you'd sort of we'd read about it rather than be with someone that said something to our right. face yeah so, no oh that's good haven't, yeah. yeah haven't quite yet learned how to be physical with someone across the ether <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, none of us need to, but sometimes. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and with with Marjorie, um, because you know that's going back into you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and mm. so there were certain things I could imagine with Delia you can kind of grasp on from your own timeline. But with writing about someone so far back, you know, uh, how how did what helped you to kind of you know, aside from the research and resources available, what helped you kind of sort of find the atmosphere and this kind of the the living, like we're talking about the living character of Marjorie for you? Yeah, well, yeah, it's obviously very difficult because it's medieval times and I'm in the 21st century. Mm. But the the basic thing of being a woman in a society that um, favours men is the the biggest connection between us because... um, we shared the same difficulties and uh, obstacles put in our way just because we were women. So that's where it initially came from. And then as I started going through Marjorie's story and researching uh, what it was like for women in medieval England and all the things, that, and the Catholicism and how that ruled everything along with the king. Mm. And um, then I started looking at her just as a person, as a woman, and sort of taking the religion out of it almost because I I couldn't relate to that but I accepted it because it was all she had so that it was a little bit like Marjorie has the religion as a kind of like rule book to um 
adhere to and then jump out of in favour of finding herself. Like Delia had her academic training to do the same thing. Mm. I didn't have no rule book. I didn't want one. So that was the biggest difference between the three of us. <laughs> is that I just like, no, no, I don't want no rules. No, go away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that's, that's you know, obviously that's um you talking about you not having a rule book and um kind of you know, in past interviews you talked about like how in the past you've you kind of felt more comfortable in being seen as being like the other and being seen as a troublemaker within art you know and obviously it goes back to the kind of famous sort of thing about being called a wrecker of civilization you know which i'm sure you're yeah. absolutely bored of hearing did you know and now obviously you know the you're heralded as in, in such a kind of important way does does it seem weird to kind of be you know, suddenly everything's shifted around. Um, it does, but I, I just carry on anyway. I don't, there's no other way I know of living. So, um, you know, I just, I just carry on doing what, whatever I do, whether it's music, art, or, you know, writing. It's, it's, it's just me. You know, I, you know, the book's dedicated to selfdom and that's what I keep on doing. It's the only way I know how to live. But the fact that it's um, you're being accepted at last is, um, yeah, I think I once said that it makes me a little bit uneasy, like um, <laughs> I might have done something wrong here. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's kind of, I don't know. I mean, being accepted, it doesn't affect me in the way that, like, I'll write, I've got a formula that everyone likes, I'll carry on with that, because mm. success as such doesn't have any real meaning to me. Mm. It's, um, I, I suppose, not in, you know, public success. Or I don't know, personally, even success to me would just be vaguely like feeling that a work that I've done, I just think that's it, it's complete. It's as, it's as one and... Yeah. Um, I move on. And that to me is what I would consider success. If it goes from me out into the world and other people like it, that's that I kind of think that's rather rather nice. Mm. Because I, I like I said before, it's about communication and I've reached out to people and they've heard me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So the the, the 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 success and the the satisfaction is in in the process. Did you do you feel like a disconnection with work you've done once it's out in the world? Then no, no, I don't. I'm I'm uh, very um, close to all the work that I do because it's a part of me. Mm. That would be like relinquishing some of myself. Yeah, and, and is there anything that you look back on that you're the most proud of, would you say? No, I don't think of it like that. Mm. I think pride and being proud of something, it's something that I have for other people, not for myself. Yeah, oh, that's lovely, actually. I think that's it's good to sort of check in with an idea like that from time to time, isn't it? When mm. kind of run away with sort of but the the ambition of of what something might we I might do to other people rather than sort of what it's there for me for and how it connects with other people perhaps. yeah it, it's a strange one because my work is me and my life mm. yet I I don't I don't feel that um 
that I kind of like like you just said it's it's not about me being successful or anything it's just me offering it yeah their offerings their gifts really yeah and it, I mean talking a little bit more about that the kind of change for the outsider status to sort of like the acceptance status was there was there a sort of a, a key moment where you you noticed the attitude of how your work was being received changing I think it was um Around about 2000, I think, around about the end of the 90s. But um, but even so, even now, I still feel other. Mm. I, I still don't, you know, people say author, and I think, am I an author? <laughs> I feel like I, I, I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't say I don't deserve it because I've written two books, but I just sort of think, I don't know, do I belong to that group? No idea. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe there's also, like, is there that much difference, really, in being an author to being a musician to being a fine artist? Because, you know, you, you, you've you done all of these things. And, um, you know, obviously there's a certain different skill set involved in, in all certain disciplines. But I was wondering if that just seemed quite similar to you. Because I know from my experience that I sort of tend to view, like, any kind of art I'm doing or expression or communication as being coming from the same place regardless yeah yeah it, it does and and it is very similar writing is very similar to doing music mm. but the big difference with music is that it's physical you hear it and it affects your body and your mind the vibrations but when you're reading and the person's reading it it's in their voice it's not in yours unless you do an audio book of course but also because the words are down on the page instead of like musical notes which have a resonance of their own and and a kind of individual effect on people mm. words are a language that is interpreted in this you know in the same way you have to be careful what words you use so that you're not misconstrued or people um like with you know not misrepresenting Delia or marjorie so writing i think is very different in that respect is that i i have to yeah i have to sculpt it more yeah yeah no no definitely because in my book when I was writing about people I was very very aware that you know I'm, I've sort of taken this responsibility particularly over people that are quite often still living as well you know and uh, mm. and it is it, it's a kind of weird thing to kind of sit there in my own little zone aware that you know <laughs> I, I, these are these are people that are that existing or have existed going about their daily lives and you know there's certain little flourishes that you want to put you know might want to put in to kind of emphasize a feeling that is like am I taking a bit of a liberty with with this did you feel there are any sort of flourishes that you really felt were like you know you were kind of umming and erring about like whether this was just good dramatic words or it really really you know would they mind that <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was uh, I was always aware of that all the way through mm. for all three of us in actual fact yeah but I, I think there is and um, you're saying because I've, I've read your book and I, I noticed how you were talking about people and what you said about them and it seemed very um yeah I, I could feel that you were giving them writing about the themselves mm. in a way and not sort of projecting yourself onto them which I think you have to be very careful of you know like you said mm. and and what you sort of think they are and I, I 
and listening, to, yeah, reading the the stories of the people that you wrote about um, was fascinating because you, I, I sort of like some people I didn't know, some I did, like Mark Reader, and mm. I think what you wrote about Mark Reader was was fantastic Thank because you. he really came across on that exactly how I know him. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he's kind of like, uh, um, but the, I think there's a bit about like m- some friends that lived uh, next door to him and they had this Christmas party and he came round and there was someone else there being really drunk and Mark and my friends were all kind of being very English about it and sort of doing the, having their head down and stuff. How, how, did, how did you know him or how did you, how did you meet him? Um, through the connection with Factory in Manchester. Ah, yeah. In the and when TG went to play in Berlin, I think we were at like um, well, the equivalent of a hot dog stall, I suppose. And then suddenly this this guy comes up behind us and like does like a a, fa- a fake sort of machine gun. <laughs> you know, look up and he's like in this like military outfit. You know, going, is that you? <laughs> yeah. So. That, that was amazing to see him again. And um, we met me and Chris met up with him recently again as well, which was wonderful. Oh. I had a really long chat. Oh, that, that's lovely. That's lovely. I, I love the fact that you know he does wear these outfits, um, and it and at the same time he's like the most down to earth. You know, for someone who dresses so flamboyantly, so sort of just a down to earth bloke. Yeah, but he's so brave. Yeah, he takes such risks, and I don't. You know, I mean. That kind of like is, um, you know, on one hand, he's very down to earth and you have these great chats and things. But then when he tells you what he's going to do next, go into China, and <laughs> which is yeah. what he was telling us about at the time. I said, but yeah, this could happen. He said, yeah, it's exciting, isn't it? <laughs> it's like <laughs> you could be arrested and locked up for the rest of your life. Oh, but that's the thrill. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of really similar to his his sort of journeys into East East Berlin yeah. in the early 80s as well. And Who would you know, have done that? Not many people, not many, yeah. not many, not many West Germans would have done that either, really, from from no. what he was saying. Yeah. <laughs> and do you feel that um sort of you've mentioned in the past about how you know you've used art to push you into uncomfortable places? Um and quite, you know, there, there's different conversations people have about art. And quite often the critical kind of view of art is people talk about what it what they feel about like witnessing art or hearing it or experiencing it. But there's also the element of like what the artist, you know, when people making work or any kind of expression, like what it gives them. You know, and, you know, you talked about in the past about how you've used this to put you into uncomfortable situations. Um, And I was wondering if that's something that still drives you, that aspect of it. Or or do you feel that, you know, you sort of found a place where, you know, you are more more sort of satisfied and and in the way, you you know, of, of just what you have around you? I think it's not satisfaction. I think I'm just more focused. Right. I mean, it, um, I've had what? Let me think. Over fifty years of doing art now, mm. so there's um a lot of things that I've learned along the way, um in my own you know in my own right, and so you you sort of have preferences of what you want to do, and you have an and you acquire different skill sets as well, mm. not necessarily orthodox skill sets either, 
you know, because, I mean, we have, like, Studio Secrets book in the studio for different things that we've discovered to do with sound and things. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't sort of like think of it in, in that way anymore. And it's not about making people feel uncomfortable or myself feel uncomfortable anymore. I mean, if that happens, then it's just um, just part of the process. It just comes out as I'm doing something, really. Mm. But also, like, the, the sense of maybe, like, also aside from making other people feel uncomfortable or yourself feel uncomfortable, but the, the sort of sense of pushing yourself into bold situations to kind of strengthen yourself, yeah well that it's it's not about making other people feel uncomfortable it's just that they're there when I'm feeling uncomfortable (laughs) (laughs) I'm going through all that so um but also I mean it's a lot of my work like going back to the actions which were um a lot of them were when when I was naked and doing different things like that and the sex stuff is that um it's all a part of life you know Mm. and I'm I'm just presenting things with that I was fascinated with and interested in. And if people come along and they witness that and find it interesting themselves or they relate to it in some way, then that then that's great. It's just I'm doing things with myself, exploring myself, but in a public arena. Mm. That was the only – and I've done private actions as well, so it doesn't need to be in public. Yeah, it's it's because I I had like a brief last year. I I life modelled a couple of times in classes, and what I found really personally quite interesting about it was that, that I didn't realise beforehand was that you know people are were looking at me, but um, I was also looking at them, and I I learned a lot about other people's creative processes and other people's processes from how you know, they, they were, you know, using the, their pen and paper and like what they were looking at and and, yeah. and like their directions. And I was wondering if that was something that, you know, dur- during that favorite, uh, period when you're working with pornography, that was something that you were kind of observing in others. Oh, absolutely. Even with the models that I was working with as well. Mm. You, you know, I, w- I was aware of um, any tensions in their body, which you then kind of like react to and take note of and, it, it's like a collaboration, you know, mm. that, that's the whole point of it. Um, whereas it, it was more like that for the for the models than it was for the photographers and um, the directors of the films, because they they knew what they were want they needed to get on on camera. Whereas we were like human beings that had to then assimilate what they wanted and figure out whether we wanted to do it and whether mm. we wanted to do it with each other. Mm. So it's like um a four-way process you've got the team that are doing like creating the images whether on film or just photographs and then you've got however many 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 models there are me and one other or it could be five people if there's like sort of an orgy or something but it is a, a collaboration and and for me my you know uh, my senses were really heightened as to you know other people and and how they felt about what was going on Mm. So in a way, like you're kind of picking up on things like, you know, obviously with Frobbing Gristle as well, there's a lot of improvisation and, and mm. there's a lot. So there is like, in a way, it's kind of like an improvisatory process, like making music in that sense. Yeah, exactly. And it, I've always thought of the, the music with TG or even when we do Chris and Cozy, Carter mm. Tutti, Carter Tutti Void, is that 
we we work off the energy in the room and because it's improvised at any moment you can respond to that to make it you know we go in the direction with them or if they're against you kind of like a sort of attack and bring forward it's it's a strange thing to do when you're in a live situation but it was like that with the art actions as well mm. yeah and and um well thanks so much for talking i just wanted to kind of ask as well like um what would you you know do you feel like art still has because the time you know that we live in such weird times at the moment you know and your art has at various points felt to me personally quite revolutionary you know do you feel that art still music still has a has a grip on 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 providing a kind of in terms of communicating with people providing like an antidote to the sort of the, the insanity <laughs> and you know yeah. we all we all know that politicians everything that politicians say is just whatever need they need to say you know and mm. it, and you know it seems to be that sort of in terms of what we hear you know the only sort of honesty comes from expression you know um mm. and do you think art still has the ability to do that and are people doing that well i think revolution is the key word isn't it mm. And we're reaching that point all over the world at the moment where um, people have just had enough of politicians and being manipulated. So, yeah, I, I, I think there's, um, this is um, right for, for good art and good music and good self-expression because, um, yeah, it should be used as well because um, we're in a dangerous position now. Yeah, it feels like a lot of things are being threatened. And, and what would you say to young people that want to try uh, finding that, you know, what in the process of finding their own voice and, and expression? What, what, you know, is there anything that jumps out that you feel that, you know, that you'd like to say to people that could kind of embolden them? I don't like giving advice to anyone, but I think people generally have to believe in themselves as a a viable and valid um, individual and a person that is equal to any other person, you know, and you have the same opportunities and it's a good thing if you use them. But first of all, I, I, I really think that you have to kind of get to know yourself and the only way to do that is to um, work with yourself. But I, I, I don't know, there's a time in your teens where you do feel very lost and I think that's a, a critical moment, a pivotal moment, where you either go along with what you can call the herd, if you like, or you can branch off and go and ex explore what, what an alternative would be to just the norm. And that's what I did. That's what Delia did. That's what Marjorie did. And lots of other people do. And I feel that that gives you a sense of fulfillment. Even if you failed in something, you've not failed doing something someone else wanted you to do. I think that's a terrible uh, sense of failure to have. Whereas if you did something because you believed in it and you failed, then you learn from that and then you go on and progress and try something else. It's all, a, you know, as they say, a learning curve. Mm -hmm. But it, it's true. It's um, Life is that. Yeah, and sometimes those, those early ideas that don't work, they, there's something in them that you kind of – people keep returning back to in different ways and yeah. different forms. You always learn something, you know, that old adage, you learn from your mistakes, but you do. Mm. And mistakes can be good. You know, they're not all bad. Definitely. 
definitely. Um, Cozy, thank you so much. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Yeah, we got quite deep, didn't we, in the end? We did. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a sort of, it's that Friday afternoon feeling, isn't it? Where where the kind of, I, I, I feel like I go into a di- slightly different sort of flow zone. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's just like before you just think, right, that's it. I'm going to just enjoy the weekend now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely the washing's almost dry, you know, the food, <laughs> the food's in the fridge. <laughs> yeah. Well, lovely to talk to you. You too. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you so much. And for your book. It's great. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. It means a lot to me. And thank you for uh for all the, the work that over the years that that sort of filtered through to me and, and affected me in, in different ways. You're very welcome. <laughs> so that was me, Paul Hamford, talking with Cozy Funny Tutti for Lost and Sound. Thank you so 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 much, Cozy, for for your time there. Resistors or Resistors is out now on Faber. Out two is Delia Derbyshire, The Myths and the Legendary Tapes, out on her Conspiracy International label. I'd like to flank, I'd like, <laughs> flank? I'd like to thank Flo and Zoe Miller for helping this interview come together. I'd like to thank ESO for the music at the beginning, at the end of this episode. Lost and Sound is presented and produced and all of that by me. My book, Coming to Berlin, is out now on Velocity Press. And this episode is sponsored by Audio Technica, makers of high-quality audio accessible to all. Headphones, turntables, cartridges, microphones. This year is Audio Technica's 60th anniversary. And that's how I was listening to... A lot of the music I've been listening to this week, particularly had a really nice experience in a laundrette, but that's for, I don't know why I'm saying that, that's for another time. <laughs> hope you're having a wonderful one. Hope you having a, um, hope you have an incredibly good day today. And I'll speak to you soon.